Hey, everybody, it is Richard Harris and Scott Lease with the Surf and Sales podcast. We are super excited to be sponsored in the month of August uh, by Salesforce, um, as well as Vidyard. We appreciate all their support. Um, as you're looking at your 2022 budgets, by all means, uh, there are lots of things going on with both those companies. Salesforce is certainly way more than CRM these days, and Vidyard's way more than just video prospecting. So please check out our sponsors. Also brought to you in part by the Harris Consulting Group and Scott Lease Consulting. So, you know, why not plug us? Although we never have in 270 episodes. So that's the first time you ever plugged us. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, I want to, you know, I didn't even like ask how you want to be introduced. I'm just going to introduce you and then you're going to tell us how you want to be introduced, Nigel. We have Nigel Green here today, who I've spoken with many times. Um, and uh, Nigel, go ahead and tell us uh, who you are, where you're working from, all that kind of stuff. Well, I am mixed bag. I am someone that uh, one of my, I guess my muses is a guy named Yvonne Chenard, and he founded a company called Patagonia, a little company a lot of folks have heard of. And his bio is he's a reluctant businessman. And I, I think to some degree that resonates with me because uh, I would only only work because I, the people I get to interact with and uh, in some of the projects that I get to do, I don't necessarily love work, but I love people. And so my work is helping mostly mid-market, so 10 to 50 million in revenue, equity-backed healthcare sales teams that have a B2B offering. Typically, there's a technology component. I come alongside their management team and help them find and select a leader or if they already have one, I help them and that leader think through systems and processes and ultimately scale the team more effectively so that they can sell the company at a favorable valuation in the next three to five years. I do that uh, outside of Nashville, lived in Nashville for 10 years and in 2018 decided well, actually, I didn't decide. I came to terms with the fact that what you work on also works on you. And the way that the city and the healthcare community was working on me was shaping my identity more towards uh, business and title and keeping up with everyone else and less from the things that are more important to me, which is being outside and playing and raising my two young children. So now I live uh, on 30 acres an hour outside of the city. I work mostly virtual, uh, especially in, in today's world, uh, from my home office, which is on the farm. And that's me. I like to bow hunt and I like to surf and uh, read a little bit. Where, where are the good surfing spots in the you know, Kentucky, Tennessee area? Well, you just go to Nashville's airport and you look at the map and go wherever, wherever Surfline says to go that week. So That's right. See, you can afford to do that when you live in Nashville and not San Francisco, Richard. And I've tried to explain this to you before. Yeah. yeah. I don't give, I don't give half my check to Gavin every month. So that's all right. That's all right. Yeah, I know. No, we, um, we have a place in Jacksonville beach. So that's kind of like my home. Home break is uh, just a little beach break in Jacksonville, but I've spent a lot of time uh, surfing the California coast. I led the sales team from 2012 to actually even before that. So I've had two, two, both of my quote professional management experiences happen to be for California companies. So from 2009 through 2012, I led a device sales team that was out of Temecula, California. So I spent a lot of time surfing in Southern California. And then from 2012 through 2015, 
uh, the clinical services provider that I led the sales team for owned and operated treatment centers up and down the entire California coast. So I got to surf um, Northern California, Central California, and expand my surfing footprint. What was uh, what's so appealing about medical sales in the medical field to you? And how would you compare it to, you know, traditional SaaS? So I don't know that it was, okay, maybe it was selected for me. So I was, I'm an old jock. I played football in college and never let my studies get in the way of my education. I was a C student. I was going to play football and I was going to drink and, and have a good time and school was whatever. Well, then it came time to graduate and I knew that I didn't want to take my degree, which was geology and put it to work. So I had some advisors say, man, you just, you're just really good with people. So you should be in sales. And I said, well, what makes the most money? And in 2006, if you were in a healthcare sales rep, that's where the money was. So I said, well, I'm going to go where the money is. And so it kind of selected me. So I, my first gig out of college was in healthcare sales. And it just became the vertical that I started developing domain experience. We've, we've uncovered a uh, an extinct dinosaur, Richard, a salesperson who's willing to admit they picked their field specifically for the money. Right. Imagine that. Imagine <laughs> that. We've come across one in the wild. Yeah. I'm one of those people. There's a, there's a few of us out there. Yeah, so am I. Dinosaur. So am I. Well, then maybe it's because we're all old that, that we're all freely admitting this. I don't know. You, you would not be in sales if it weren't for injuries. Hey, fair, fair enough. But, you know, here I, here, here I am. Yeah. Yeah. It was what you choose. You did choose it though. You did, yeah. you know, you had a choice to make about something and you certainly didn't go into, you know, insurance or accounting or, ge or geology as Nigel. Well, it's, it's worth pointing out now that I mean, to your point now, SAS sales is far sexier than being a device rep. There have been some major legislation changes in the healthcare selling space that have made what you can earn uh, far more capitative. And then there have been some other bureaucratic changes like the- uh, Wait, Go back and what was that word? And can you define it? Because Scott and I are, we have degrees, but we're not that smart. Which word? I think it was the word caffeinated, cafe? Capitative? Capitate, yeah, capitative. Uh, to, to cap, to limit, to uh, govern, to basically control the extent to which not just a seller can earn, but what you can price something at, uh, the extent to which you can incent, induce the customer. There are a lot of changes, and they're good changes, Stark Laws, Sunshine Act, a lot of good changes in the healthcare space that have made the heydays back in the early 2000s when literally reps were, I mean, just your run of the mill device rep was making half a million bucks a year. It just doesn't exist anymore. What is, what is the more realistic for anybody listening who's like considering, you know, a different type of field to go into and they're thinking about medical sales in some capacity, like what are realistic numbers these days? You know, what should somebody be looking for in terms of salary and variable comp and and that kind of thing. And are there still advantages to, to this field or should people gravitate more towards SaaS? Like it seems like is more popular now. 
I think that there still are a lot of really strong earning potentials in healthcare, even as a producer. I mean, there are reps that make well in the 200s, 300s a year. The 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 path now for those that, that care is probably to cut your teeth as, as a being a top producer as a W-2 and representing one company making a you know, quarter million bucks a year, then taking your existing customer base, right? Because you there's there are barriers to entry in healthcare. You have to be really sophisticated and, and well-versed on one product offering to, to earn the credibility or to earn the right, as Richard would say, to sell to a physician and a surgeon. But once you've built that relationship, then you can terminate your W-2 agreement. A lot of times it's you have to sit on the sidelines for a while through a non-compete, but where the real money is made is to go back and go to those same physicians that were buying widget A through your own independent company. You start your own company as a 1099. You're just a sales rep. You're just no longer W-2 with one employee. And now you can sell multiple products to that doc. And the sales reps that figure that out become their own independent distributor. They make a million bucks a year. Mm. So what do you, you talked about how the, the funding or the ability to make that much money, was it legal that came in? Was it companies realizing we want profit margin we're giving away to the reps like what what were other things that you saw shift probably more uh less less legal there, there is i mean obviously there's stark law and sunshine act and basically the premise of those two pieces of legislature is to say that any type of uh spiff or inducement is probably a better word for the sales rep or to the provider which is the doctor or the physician uh, that might influence patient care is impermissible. So, so what where that becomes problematic is if if you're the doctor, Richard, and I go and take you out to play golf, uh, they, they look at that. The, the hospital says, "Well, did that in fact help influence Richard's decision on which total knee he wanted to use in his procedure?" It or they want it to just totally be about the fidelity and the research behind the product not the relationship. So in, in some product categories altogether, they just have to pay flat compensation to the reps because of those two pieces of legislature. The other thing that changed is this, um, there's this, this bot, these, bot, these purchasing bodies in the healthcare system called group purchasing organizations. And essentially what they did is they said, if, if we can group multiple hospital systems together, we will increase their purchasing power. So forget the reps. We're just going to go straight to the manufacturer and say, hey, I represent these hospitals and I want your best bottom price. Right. So they get the deal done and they don't right. need reps anymore. Right. Right. So they, they opened up the channel and it became more competitive. Got it. Bingo. I want to so then the role of the sales rep became more about contract compliance and less about new business. Interesting. I am, I, Richard, in case I ever decide to go that route with my sales career, just please refer me back to this episode as I'm realizing how unqualified I am to do what Nigel has done in his career. That sounds like torture to me. I was going to say, you, you wouldn't even be desirous of it. Was the, oh. whole point, was the whole point of this episode to just really just see your listenership decline? Because that's what we're doing here. <laughs> no, it's to learn about things that we know nothing about. And right. I know nothing about this field whatsoever. Right. So we're fully educating ourselves on what 
I at least will never be able to do in my career. And Let me ask you this, Nigel. I want to ask you this. Let's, because I know we, well, I want to come to two things. But my first question is talk about what's good about going. You know, we've sort of like chastised it a little bit, which I don't think is, you know, I don't, I don't want to. You can make a million dollars still, Richard. So yeah. it's very lucrative for one. What, what, what else is, you know, what else is good about this field? Is it, you know, it's all in the field. So you do work from home, which was sort of built in for COVID, so to speak, or, you know, what are the other strengths of this particular field for sales? In my experience, and I'll use SaaS as a comparison. So my experience with uh, the SaaS space is that it's largely venture backed. Okay. So do you have multiple investors that have written smaller checks and don't necessarily have the, uh, the moxie or the tolerance for a longer growth cycle within the company. And that leads to a culture of uh, insatiability on the management team and the, and the investors and uh, a lot of micromanagement and unrealistic expectations. And, and a lot of that's also just driven by the multiples and the, the economics of the space. I'm building a clock to tell you the time. There's a lot of autonomy in the medical device space. You just don't have people, managers, investors that don't understand the business breathing down your neck about quotas and expectations and year over year growth that are untenable. Uh, so that's one advantage. And it's largely a sink or swim space. It's either you have it or you don't, because there every year there's a new cohort of ex-college athletes that know how to manage themselves and will run through a brick wall for a dollar. And it just it's kind of a space that uh, the cream rises to the crop without a lot of coaching, training, management and artificial intelligence and forms of technology and all these tools like gong and chorus that just doesn't exist. People don't use that. Got it. Got it. But it, would it, would it help the industry and sellers in that industry to modernize some of the tactics though, and bring some of the, the tech and the best practices of B2B into your world? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think it would also help. Uh, I think the, the, Right. The truth's always somewhere in the middle. I think there are a lot of folks in the SaaS space that could learn uh, from the autonomy that's given to sellers to allow them to create their own destiny and not be stuck in nonsensical motions of reporting and documentation. So, but yeah, absolutely, Scott, there's, um, there's, there's certainly a case for using technology to get more out of the sellers you have versus throwing more bodies at it. And I don't want to make it sound like it's an overly uh, dumb or uh, less than sophisticated go-to-market business because it, it, it really can be, but you don't see the extent, to the extent that you do in the SaaS space, the deployment of technology and, and analytics and intelligence. Yeah. I mean, in, in some cases, you know, I could see medical device sales from the outside looking in is a very sophisticated sale because you're dealing with sophisticated buyers, right? You're dealing with very smart people. You have to understand them, their patients. You know, I can see why athletes would be good at this because they've gone through pain or, you know, some level of, of need, thought, or use of some of these devices, right? If it's around joints and stuff like that. So yeah. I can see that. I can see that value as a different type of sale mentally 
um, to what you're describing. Uh, I want to. I want to say that it's, it is a very sophisticated. In fact, I'll say it's far more nuanced. The buyer's journey and the and the sales process is far more nuanced and subject to uh, anecdotes and bespokeness than the. What than does the that mean? More nuanced. Well, like what we just talked about earlier. I mean, Doctor Doctor Harris may have had a relationship with um, with Nigel for the past three years and could care less that Synthes has a new research study about um, the screw that comes out. He's been using Arthrex for five years and he's just really not interested in changing. So it doesn't matter. Like it, you just can't get in. Got it. So pain better product, better price, better outcomes. Doesn't matter. Okay. So pain of change is a big objection in that world. Yeah. What uh, I want to come back to something you said at the very beginning, which was, you know, I was working, you know, what I was working on was working on me. What did that mean? Like, you know, I can think of several words, but I want you to define it. Well, I'll give you a story. So in in May of 2018, I just uh, helped a good friend of mine who's the CEO of Reload raise. We raised a $10 million Series A through a strategic healthcare fund. And one year into that, I found myself, now mind you, at, at 31, I'd had two successful exits as a sales leader. At 31 years old, wondering still about who was hanging out with who, uh, who was going to be invited to go to this private equity event, sneaking off in the night to go look at emails. Even when I was at home, I wasn't at home. I was more concerned about the game. Scott, and I just stop right there. Scott, I know you. How many times have you checked your how many times have you checked your phone since you've been on this podcast? Zero. Zero? That's impressive. Yeah. So yeah. about between seven, seven o'clock at night and ten o'clock at night. How many times do you check your messages? Whenever one comes through. Right. So so is that is that what you were experiencing, Nigel? Ex- yeah, to some degree. I mean, it was being always accessible, right? And not that there's anything wrong with, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. In fact, I attribute a lot of my success as a professional operator to being accessible and be willing to do the work and, and never quite turning it off. But I listened to, uh, there was a Tim Ferriss podcast with a guy named Mr. Money Mustache. His name's, his real name's Pete, but I don't, he goes by Mr. Money Mustache. And it's like a two and a half hour conversation about, how if you just make a modest amount of money and think about the things that really make you happy and start optimizing how you spend your time and your money around the things that truly bring you joy, it changes the way you think about work, the way you think about retirement, and the way you think about how you go to work, where you work, the work that you do. And it just kind of kept eating at me that I was living this life that on the surface, it seemed really sexy and cool, but I, I was over it. I mean, I'd been there, I'd done it. And really all I wanted to do was be a dad, uh, focus more on my family and not be mentally distracted and, and physically gone. I spent most of 2009 through 2015 gone and I had a newborn daughter and a three-year-old son. And I just didn't want it anymore. So I I felt like the only way for me, knowing my personality style is I had to create some spatial distance. So I I quit, stepped down from reload, and just became a board of advisors member and moved to 
moved to Kentucky without having any idea what I was going to do. Um, I was content to be a whitetail hunting guide. Uh, but then like, you know, shortly after that, people started calling me and asking for advice. And that's how I got into advising and consulting. Do you work without, if you're comfortable, how much money did you feel like you needed to find that happiness, right? Like you're, to some extent, you're at that stage where you've had two successful exits. Was it enough fuck you money, as we like to say, or was it, no, it really wasn't. But, you know, where I live in, in you know, the Tennessee and Kentucky area, cost of living's lower and I can, you know, really live a happy lifestyle and I don't need $30 million, $100 million. Well, it's, it's definitely not FU money or we wouldn't be talking today because there would be no need. I mean, I'd be on a boat somewhere surfing beautiful point breaks, uh, but it's, it's enough to where it changes the way, like I become, I'm no longer manageable. It's enough money, Richard, that I am a terrible employee. I won't do the things that you need and expect from a sales leader to do. I just won't do it. I don't have the need to push through the pain to go do it because I'm so comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I, I said, dude, you, you can't, you can't do this anymore. You're, you're not, you don't have what it takes. So it's enough money for me to think about life very differently and know that I can take two months off every year and not have to earn a nickel, you know? So it's talk about that for a second. We talked, I made you stop talking when we first got on two months off every year. Explain what that means, because it's it's not necessarily broken up every quarter. No. So um, where I live, white-tailed deer breed in the month of November and December. It's like their peak. So it makes for really good uh, hunting encounters. And I like to bow hunt. Uh, so I don't work in November and December so that I can be in the woods and chase these white-tailed deer. I, my, my question around you around this is how do you how do you restart come January and February both from a um, like emotional standpoint right of of like doing what you love obviously for, for for two months and not working every day how do you emotionally get back into the mode of like of working and then also from literally it's like a pipeline and income kind of perspective. Like how do you go from earning whatever you normally earn in September and October to earning nothing. And then you enter January and you're like, ah, fuck, I got to start over. I got nothing. That's the part that at least for me is stressful to me to think about if I was going to do that and, and why I've never been able to um, pull off what, what you pull. I just, off. I just, Scott, I just chatted, Scott, we're going to take this answer and we're just going to put it in a loop. And while he's asleep every night, <laughs> how do you come back, Nigel? How do you re how do you start the engine? We might have lost him. Oh no! All right, Let's that's the answer. Maybe is he just disappeared? Up. Yeah, and if he pop, if he pops back in here in a second, it'll just be like, well, I just disappear and I seamlessly rejoin, and it's not that big a deal. But that's the part that stresses me out, Richard. Is like. I could say, adios, I'm going to Costa Rica through September, through the rest of the year. And I could unplug. I truly believe that, that, I, that I can unplug and I can do that. But 
I, could, I can't unplug forever. And if I knew that I was coming back in, in January, I would be very stressed about like, oh my God, I have no pipeline. I got to start from scratch. I've lost all my momentum. That's the part that like freaks me out. And I, that's why I was I asking. Know that. So let me ask you this question, right? So we're going to go to Costa Rica, right? For three weeks, right? Yeah. And it's part work. So I know you'll do some work, but you still won't. What happens if three leads come in during Costa Rica? Five leads come in. I mean, obviously oh, you're going to take them. But I'll, rep I'll reply to every single one of them and have conversations and, and set things up. Even if I don't start those engagements in November, but, you know, stagger them out or whatever. So, right. I mean, maybe, maybe that's what he does. Right. And he doesn't consider that work. I don't He's back. I got you on. You're like, you're like the bad internet juju for me. That's all right. <laughs> So, so Nigel, go back to the question. How do I, how do I, how do you restart? How do you re, you take two months off November and December. Yeah. How do you, one, what happens to, if you have any inbounds, I don't know if you're inbound heavy and two, how do you kick back up in January? Right. Because there's a concern that the pipeline will die. Right. Yeah. So how do you, how do you navigate that? One emotionally, because I think that's the hard part. And then two, in actuality and reality. So I'll try to partition the problems that keep me up at night around this uh, it, to the extent that I can. So there's the emotional, uh, how do you turn it back on? Well, I think that's with practice. It, it's taken me, uh, it, it, like, it's not always easy, but I just like delete internet, uh, like delete email off my phone. And so that then I become like a, a bridled horse come January. Like I've done, I've got, I take notes. I think about the stuff that I want to work on and I don't allow myself to take any action on it. So once the end of the year is here, I just come out and I'm ripping and roaring and I have this sense of renewal. Do, what do you do if like clients, I mean, obviously you can let your clients know you're, you're, you're shutting it down. What about new business? Like do you just have an out of office message and you're like, fuck it. If I miss it, I miss it. Yeah. And that's really hard. That's super hard. And that takes a ton of discipline. I, I don't have that discipline right now. Yeah. I and I just, and like, again, I want to make it clear. It's not like I have so much money that I just don't need, like I need to work. Well, um, that makes it even more impressive, to be honest with you. To right. Me. Uh, I, but I've found that I it, it the whole point of work is to live and to have fun. And so what's the point of me having a little bit of cushion in my bank account if I'm not going to live like someone else? If all I'm going to do is just work and work, what's the point? And so at least that's in my mind, what's the point? Uh, so I miss opportunities. I have difficult conversations with my clients on the front end that Hey, it's right now, like say right now we're in August, we're going to take on this project. It seems like everything is going great, but I'm telling you, I don't care what it is in November and December. You will not get me. And I'm trying to impress upon you now, Mr. Client, but sometimes it doesn't end well. There's like, you know what, this isn't working. And I've had two instances where they said, it's just not working. And I said, great. One of them hired me back in January. The other one said, not working. I don't bill them when I'm not working. So it's not like they're paying for something they're not getting. I have, you know, so basically I do, I have two kinds of work. I have ongoing coaching and that's 
pretty easy. We set some objectives for the leaders that I coach, the things I want them to work on while I'm not there. Uh, and then we come back and we just pick right back up. Most of the folks I coach have been with me for two years. They just re- they started out as some of the first clients and I've kept them. I miss projects, like I said earlier. Uh, and from, from a pipeline perspective, yeah, it takes a while to get it going again. And so what ends up happening is I work, I build up my pipeline, I fulfill the work. And by about this time of the year, middle of August, I'm looking forward to slowing down because I've been running and gunning all summer. That's awesome. I, I can already see the wheels in Scott's head turning of like, hey, man, put me on your out of office message. So here's a percentage. I, I read the book by Paul Jarvis called Company of One, because when I started as a consultant, there are all these ways, you know, between online funnels to sell digital products to standing up a team and building an agency. And none of that really appealed to me. I said, I, I don't really want to build a course and have to go think about pointing traffic to it and paying for ads and building this community I've got to manage. And I don't want to build a team because I've already done that. And that just seems like people problems. So I read Paul Jarvis's book, Company of One. And he said, the true sign of a solopreneur is a, the ability to set an upper end number and stick to it. To say upper that's end, Upper end number, what does that mean? Revenue, clients, earning. This year, I'm going to do this much. And when I get there, I'm just going to- I'm going to- On it. Like it's not, it's not this you, percent of like infinite. And you, don't have, and you don't, okay. So let's say that I set my number to 20 clients this year and it's August 9th. I've already hit, hit my 20 and I'm like, it's a wrap. I'm taking off the rest of the year. How the hell do I get to 20 again next year? That's the, that, that, that part spooks me. So how do you coach me to not be worried about that? Well, I think part of what I do is it's a lot of it is around meeting them where they are and advising them through a season. So it's not, I'm going to teach you the seven closing techniques, or we're going to work on this negotiating. It's more of, I have been where you want to go. So when I come back and I sit down with the CEO that hired me and, and I'm coming off sabbatical, I'm just through asking questions about how the business is doing. I'm I'm able to uncover projects that make sense, add value to the business that I can just jump in and start working on. And I don't know if that's the answer you're looking for, but like, so I mean, it's a real life situation. Like there's this company that I've, I've advised. I've been on their board of directors for four years now. And I called the CEO uh, a couple of months ago and I said, Hey, um, I actually have some margin in my schedule. I'm going to come down and sit with you and I just want to catch up. And then from that came a project where we're actually going to define what the business, where the business needs to be, what it needs to look like on paper to justify a certain role. What would the competencies be of that role? And and we put together a whole project around that. That's great. You got it sorted out. I, I just suck at this. You know, I'm the type of person that like, I make 150 grand, 200 grand in a month. And then I divide that in half and I'm suddenly making 70 or that's 80. When he, that's when he calls me. 
That yeah. thing Scott picked up the phone and calls me and goes, oh my God, dude, my revenue's been cut in half. And I'm like, yeah, I'm that, I'm, 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 I'm that guy. Like I hate the scoreboard going backwards on Scott, me. I, I feel like I, let me make it clear. I'm not good at it. Okay. Like but, literally but, I have, but you do it anyway, which, which is, which I'm trying to like, I'm trying to learn from the Jedi master here. This is what this is. This is me. Literally. To, how do I absorb some of Nigel's energy here? August the 19th, I'm getting ready to walk into my board of advisors member, the, the groups that advise Nigel Green, the business, and I put together the deck to send out to the advisors. And it's like the entrepreneur in me is scared because revenue is going to hit a cliff. But the person in me is relieved and like yeah. it's going to be a central theme of the board meeting is yeah. helping me navigate the the entrepreneur drive to scale and scale with this, like this vacillation between what's the point. I get fly on the wall of that meeting, Richard. I want to, I want to sit on that too. Like I would love to, I, I, I will tell you, Nigel, you should record that and put it out. Like I think people would find tremendous value as a, you know, if you're bored to let you like hearing that process, because I think, I think that's where you probably create your ability to let go a little bit. Right. Where these, I would hope that's what your advisors do. There's, there's a lot of there's a lot of solopreneurs out there like us who can relate to this, right? Like uh, we're, Richard, we're both older older than Nigel a little bit, but like I'm in my mid 40s. I got two kids who are middle schoolers, right? I got health challenges. I got a lot of other interests, whether it's surfing or whatever else. Like I there there's how do I figure this out? How do I get more comfortable? How do I do it anyway, even though it makes me uncomfortable? And there's a lot of other solopreneurs who are maybe earlier in their journey or just like crazy financially motivated. And they're like, nah, fuck that. I'm, ne I'm not that guy. I'm never, never going that direction. But there is a segment of the population like us potentially that this is super interesting and, uh, and appealing to. And I just think it's commendable that you've figured it out and you do it anyway, even though it's scary and, and, uh, and different, it's very authentically you. So I, I think it's pretty awesome. I, I think it makes me one live more authentically. And I think it makes me a better consultant because I certainly come back different. Right. So if it's kind of, I was listening to uh, this podcast this morning and uh, it's from Cal Newport and he talks about cheating your craft and it, it was coming from his, he wrote a book 10 years ago called So Good They Can't Ignore You. But he, he talks about how folks like you and I that have built a business around our expertise of cheating our craft. And so for me, if, if I run 12 months a year and just do work and the whole framework for the work that I teach and the guidance I provide is all from my experience, I'm cheating my craft. And so, so much of November and December while I'm I'm not working, I'm sitting in a tree for hours thinking about questions that I don't have the answer to or problems that are still unsolved in my mind. Uh, like, yeah. for, like, for instance, I think about all the time how dumb SDRs are, like not the people, but like generally how dumb the notion of it is, how it's confusing for the customer. But I don't have the answer. I don't have the answer. And so I'm, I'm I use things like my sabbatical to think through questions like that. What do you, how much other time do you take off a year? 
Well, I don't work any Fridays, so that's 52 Fridays. Um, yeah, and then wow. I mean, I was I was gone for a week in June. We went down to Florida a week in July. Um, I don't know. I I probably should go look and see how much I actually work. Yeah, it'd be curious. I mean, it's interesting that you built that, and congratulations on it because I think it's what so many of us strive for. Whether well, you're whether you're a solopreneur, or just just a human working at any job, right? Like you know. Well, here's how it's made me better: is I don't do my clients' work for them. I don't come to meetings that they just say, you, we're having a meeting and we want you here. I don't do that anymore. And I've found a delicate way to say, don't invite me to your standing Monday or standing Wednesday. I'm not coming. I don't care. And if they say, hey, can you send me this report or well, what do we need to report on? And let's find a resource that you have that's probably more capable of doing it than me. And I don't put together presentations or like, I just don't do that stuff. And I think I've learned to chip away at the at commitments that I don't need to do. And that's helped me, but it's hard work to do that. Yeah. I've got, I've finally gotten my place to that too. And I've sort of built a, a, a workbook for my clients that they can go and figure some of this stuff out. Right. So, but, it, but there's no pain-free life. I mean, if I'm being totally raw, there's a lot of me that like I get on LinkedIn and I'll look and see, man, Richard's got so many followers and Scott's got all this, you know, Thursday night sales and Scotty's little sales club. And there's a little chirping in my head about. Yeah, but you just got done saying that you don't want to deal with community and managing. You know, so I know, but that's the paradox, off. right? Isn't that the paradox? Yeah. Yeah, yes. yeah. yeah for sure. All right, but I gonna, want to be to our- important and I want to be significant. And I see what you're doing and I'm saying, oh man, look how relevant and important they are. And nobody knows about me. I mean, you know, so there's, you got to deal with that. Yeah. It's an, it's an interesting dialogue and, and two sides of the coin for sure. So I got to, you know, we're going to give a quick shout out to our sponsors and, you know, we're going to turn it over to you to ask us a question. Um, but thank you to Salesforce and Vidyard for sponsoring us. We always appreciate their massive support. Please, as you're building out your 2022 planning and budget, uh, that you start to look at these things and start to think about the pains you have and where those folks could be uh, helpful. So our, you know, our, our standard last question, Nigel, is what can we answer for you? What question do you have for us? I have so many questions. Um, first one is for Scott, and it's really, it's a question that I have a lot of empathy around, largely because my, my book launch, uh, Revenue Harvest, was... Um, by all intensive purposes, it was a failure. And it, I launched a book a month before the pandemic and all of my PR outlets said, unless you have something about the pandemic or Trump or working from home, we're not talking about a book. And then I see you have one of the most reliable e-commerce platforms totally botch your, at least some of your pre-sale events. And I couldn't help but think I would freaking come unglued. And you just managed it with like such grace and empathy to Amazon. And I'm wondering like, who did you go to talk to? Like who did, who was in your corner that talked you off the going nuclear? Well, Richard's smiling because he's probably one one of the the people i i think that i've done a good job <clears throat> surrounding myself with people who um 
will listen to me complain. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm, I've, t- I've said, used the phrase before, like I'm sort of a, a, a near-term pessimist and a lo- short-term pessimist and a long-term optimist. What it means is like when something goes haywire like that, like I'm not immune to bitching and moaning at all. Like my go-to is like, what the fuck? The sky is falling. I'm catastrophizing everything. And I, and I kind of put it out there to a few places, you know, Richard, maybe Amy, other friends of mine. I move past that real quick, though. That phase doesn't stick with me very long. And I move real quick to like, well, what do I do now? Like, I'm, I can't do anything about the fact that Amazon fucked up and canceled all these pre-launch orders. Like, I lost hundreds of orders, hundreds, and they didn't come back. Not, not all of them, for sure. There's nothing I can do about it. So here's what I can do. And I just try to make the most of that, that situation. So I think I, I don't internalize all of it. I have these little outlets. So I kind of get it out of my system privately. And then I move away towards like just acceptance and trying to make the most out of the situation. Um, and, you know, taking a long-term view, which is my goal with any of these books that I've authored I'm not trying to, you know, sell a million copies and and get rich off the book. I'm trying to put some of my ideas on paper and have it be a calling card, if you will, and almost like a long demand gen kind of play, both for my my brand, because now maybe somebody comes to surf and sales because they read this book and they like what I have to say. Well, I make a couple thousand dollars off of that versus 10 bucks off a book. Or maybe I put together this sales playbook you know, uh, book, this audio book or whatever. And like some founder hears it or some VP of sales. And now they bring me in as a consulting coach. And now I make a hundred grand off of that. So I, I think I do a decent job of like understanding what this work is for and what results I'm kind of hoping to, to get out of it. Hopefully that answers the question yeah. a little bit. Richard, you, you're pretty open about your mental health and, mm-hmm. Mine, a lot of what led to me taking two months off every year was driven by really poor mental health, drinking too much, uh, generally a very negative outlook on on life and uh, questioning everything. Um, And I wonder, like now that things are seemingly opening back up, maybe maybe not. I think what where do you see? your business going in the next 12 months it's, you know my understanding is you do you do a lot of seminar type work and, and maybe that's a, a, a mischaracterization but are, are you seeing the seminar type the more of training curriculum driven work picking back up for you and and how and then the second part of that is like how did you manage when it seemed like it was vaporized so um, last year, good questions. Last year uh, in April, when things went down, I did the first thing I'd never done in 50 years, which was get an advisor. I got someone outside of Scott and you know some other people um, and was able to, to morph my business from, on, from, from live in person to live on Zoom. Most of my, most of my business has been um, 
has been, you know, working with a client directly, going to their sales team, doing training, et cetera. So I morphed into more of a five-week training and reinforcement program since I didn't have to travel as much. I'm morphing that back into uh, in-person as things open up. Um, so that's that's the first thing. This year, um, you know, the world sort of adjusted for me too in that I got these different kind of consulting gigs, some stuff that Scott's always been telling me to do, but they sort of finally started to come in my lap. So I'm looking, I'm looking to shift and create a little, you know, more into my advisory services um, and even some sales ops stuff that I've traditionally avoided. I kind of realized where my niche is in there. So I can do some things that aren't solely reliant on training uh, for my business. So I've just, you know, I, I tend to move slow, right? Scott's all about action over ideas and I'm get stuck in my ideas all the time. Scott, this is what Scott bitches and moans at me about all the time. And he's right. I just get in my own way. Uh, and I think that comes from my mental health. That comes from my um, imposter syndrome that I've had for as long as I can remember. Um, you know, Scott always, you know, Scott always tells me, you know, you're, you're worth more than you give yourself credit for. Um, and so that's, you know, that's one of the beautiful things about our relationship is we're pretty direct about these things and, you know, not direct and being an asshole, but just sort of, you know, we love each other and we care. So that's that piece onto the, to our people coming back to in-person, they're talking about it. Nobody knows. Nobody, I don't care what anybody says. Nobody knows what they're going to do. Um, I got off a call right before this to go speak at something in January, um, you know, assuming it happens. A good friend of mine works at a big company. They literally spent quarter million dollars doing their big sales kickoff. And on Monday, the day of, they bailed on it because mm -hmm. of the Delta variant, right? Um, and the CEO is just like, you know, and they had to switch it in like 48 hours to virtual. How are they going to do this? And the CEO just wasn't willing to put that many people um, as he felt at risk in the sense of, of, you know, he would just feel terrible if something happened, right? He knew he wasn't liable, but he would feel terrible. Uh, in our family, we were going to host my father-in-law's 80th birthday party here with like 30 or 40 people. Um, and we canceled. So I think everybody's desirous for these things. And it just depends on what those companies are comfortable doing, right? I think that's a big, you know, some are comfortable with it, some aren't, and we'll still see, you know, where it goes. So our, that being said, we're still doing surf and sales. In fact, as you plan next November, 2022, you need to plan for at least one week, either the second or third week of November to, to be coming with us to, um, to Costa Rica, because we'll be doing it again. Although maybe Mexico, maybe we'll do somewhere different. All right. So. Or we'll come in and we'll do some bow hunting sales and we'll just come to you. <laughs> there you go. There's, that's the business. Hey, that's the business that you could create in November and December. You just change what you're working on. You get paid to take people bow hunting and talk shop. That yeah, was, there you go. Free, free advice right there. There you go. Just created more work for me. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, no, that's what I do. I'm good with that. <laughs> Thanks so much for uh, spending some time with us, Nigel. Uh, for me, at least, super fascinating to hear, you know, your take and perspective on things. And um, I think, like I said, super, I respect your decisions and, and how you're going about things right now. So good on you. Oh, thank you. Thank you guys for having me on. I have admired both of you. Uh, Richard, we've had a better relationship. Scott, I've just admired you from afar and, and just commend you both for 
the way you speak uh, in such authentic and, and true expert, you know, you're an expert, but you say the things that other people just are thinking, but no one will be courageous enough to say. So I appreciate you being the lighthouse for the rest of us in that regard. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure, man. Good to see you, Nigel.